was walking through the woods this morning on my morning walk and something fell out of a tree, just about hit me in the head, landed next to me. I looked down and it was a pawpaw fruit. But I hadn't seen a pawpaw in quite a while. You don't see them that often in the wild. You see the trees all the time growing in the undergrowth, but by the time they ripen up, the animals have already eaten them. They taste great. It really tastes great. It's kind of a banana custard flavor, maybe a little bit citrusy. You'll find them growing on the hillsides, down in the bottomland, wherever it's a little bit moist and wet in the undergrowth. It's a rare delicacy that you don't get all the time. So get out in the woods and find yourself a pawpaw fruit. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville with two cats by my side. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right off the bat that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Mike Bubb. Mike is a five-time IBMA Bass Player of the Year. He's a great all-around musician, and he's even a better guy to hang out with. You can follow Mike on Twitter at twitter.com slash oldbubby. Mike was fortunate enough to get to spend a lot of time around Jimmy Martin, the king of bluegrass. And he's got a lot of great stories about it. He was nice enough to come over to my living room and share some of these stories. I really enjoyed this. I laughed a lot. And even after we got done talking, sat around for quite a while and heard a lot more stories. I probably should have recorded that stuff also. But I really appreciate Mike coming over. And I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I did. Here's Mike Bubb. You know, he used to call our house. I lived with Terry Eldridge for about seven years. He was with the Osborne Brothers for 12 years. And so, of course, they'd see each other at festivals a lot. And Jimmy and I, they always had this tenuous relationship. But all the side men would know each other and, and talk to each other. And we'd all been over to Jimmy's house from time to time. One of the very first recording sessions I ever did in Nashville was with a guy that worked for Jimmy named uh, Audie Blaylock. He's uh, from northern Indiana. Great bluegrass singer and guitar player, mandolin player. He worked with Jimmy for a long time, but he was making an album, and he was going to have Jimmy Martin produce it. And uh, that was the very first recording session I'd ever done in Nashville. And maybe that's where I first really met Jimmy Martin, because I'd never really been around him much, but to get in the studio with him. And so, of course, he cut a bunch of Jimmy Martin songs, and but he wanted to kind of change him up and do him his way. Well, the wrong guy was producing the record because he only knew how to do him one way, and that's his way. And so they got into it in the studio. But one of the funny things was the studio had uh, uh, the control room was on one floor, and the studio was on another floor. It's like in a barn, like a repurposed barn. 
They had video cameras in there where you could see in the control room what was going on. And so uh, we cut this uh, gospel song of Jimmy's called Stormy Waters. And his music, he loved walking bass. He always wanted the bass to move underneath him. Like when he's singing, you, you play straight. And then in between, when the instruments come in, you pulse up the music. You know, you juice it up with a walking bass. And I didn't really know much about his music at that time when I first came to Nashville. I knew some of the classic, but I didn't know, I didn't really know the nuance of it, you know, the, the nitty gritty stuff. So anyway, we cut this song. He says, you're not putting that bass in there right. You've got to walk that thing. And I was like, well, I, I'm not sure where. And we, so he, I end up overdubbing the bass part again, and he gets in this booth with me. And these guys are all downstairs watching this on camera. <laughs> and he starts telling me, he starts poking me in the shoulder when it's time to walk the bass. And he's... And he, it's everything he can do to keep him going, doop, 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 doop. And, but he's just poking me and kind of jumping around like an orangutan in this booth with me. And these guys were just howling on the floor downstairs. They just thought it was the funniest damn thing they ever saw in their life. And uh, I was, you know, of course, just green and just, I was just intimidated. I was scared to death. I didn't know what was going on. But that's probably my first real hanging out with him, you know. When we first came to Nashville, the first time I came to Nashville with a band, we played in this, this Spigma band contest, international band contest. And Jimmy was always at that thing. Sometimes you'd see him and he'd have a, coon, a raccoon on a leash. and Or he'd be wearing a raccoon head's hat. Not a coonskin hat, but an actual hat made from the upper head, you know, jaw of a raccoon. So it had eyes and everything. Wore it as a hat. Just a crazy character, you know. And, of course, in those situations, people would be buying him drinks, and he'd just get more colorful by the drink. And and uh, I remember uh, one year at the Spigma contest, it was at the Marriott, and um, Del McCurry was there. And he had Del cornered in this hallway, and he was getting him to sing these Bill Monroe duets. And I just remember standing there watching him, and he had a hold of Dell's arm, you know, wouldn't let him go. And he says, now let's, now let's get this again. And uh, somebody had like a boom box tape recorder or whatever. He said, now back that tape up and get this on tape. I want you to get this on tape. <laughs> and the guy's standing there with his boom box recording it, you know, and them going over this chorus over and over again. It's just hilarious, you know. You would never meet anybody more confident or passionate about what they did in the music business than Jimmy Martin. And truthfully, he could pretty much back it all up. A little later on in his life, he was a little bit more haywire, but Bobby Osborne told me that when they were younger, you know, he, he was a perfectionist and he strove for perfection in his music, both vocally and, and harmony wise. And, and, and he would tell you, you know, that, the worst thing that's ever happened in this business is the tour bus. He said, first thing they want to do is go to bed. He said, nobody wants to work on their damn music. He said, we used to work on our music all the time. And you can imagine just back in the day, just trying to kill time in a hot car. All you could do was sing harmony and learn songs and write songs. And, and you're all packed in there together. You might as well make the best of it, most of it, you know. These days, everybody's uh, pretty much a friendly, hugging community, you know. Back then, it wasn't like that. It was serious comp competition because there was only so many successful bluegrass bands, really, at the time. They all had a very distinct sound, and they all had, they all had to survive. 
because of rock and roll. So it became very competitive. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. I recorded with him one time on a Benny Martin record. No relation, but another Nashville legend icon. One of the funny things was that Osmond Brothers were going to record with Benny Martin as well, but they wouldn't allow themselves to be on the same record with Jimmy Martin. They didn't want their name to be in the cast list with Jimmy Martin. So it's actually two separate Benny Martin records, and the Osmond Brothers are on one and Jimmy Martin's on the other. Anyway, we go in to record with Jimmy Martin, and, of course, he takes over immediately. You know, this is how we're going to do it. And he says, now, where's my tenor singer? And the engineer says, well, he's going to be in this booth over here, and we're going to have you over here. He said, what? He said, yeah, he's going to be in that room right there, and you'll be over in this room. He says, well, hell, you can't tell me you're going to put my tenor singer in that room over there and have me over here and expect him to sing with me. Hell, you got to get him out here where I can help him. <laughs> and what he was saying was, you know, if you look at old session pictures, like in those box sets of them making these records, his band stood in a circle around one, like, stereo mic, and the bass player had his own mic, but he would lean in to sing. And they basically mixed those records on the floor of the studio. They're live. This is live as you could get. They didn't get in different rooms and, and adjust the dynamics with volume knobs at a console. They sang together and adjusted themselves to each other's voices and matched their tones and their voices together. You know, like when you stand next to somebody and sing, there's a place that you can get to where you're just reverberating the same way, you know, and that's what he would have preferred and that's what he knew how to do. Now, he'd made records with headphones and all that kind of stuff, but the best records that he ever made were made live in the studio, and his band was always rehearsed and ready to go because... They worked on their music all the time in the car, you know. I could tell that that situation just kind of broke his heart because the guy, the engineer, said, well, we just don't do it that way anymore, Jimmy. You know, it's like, well, really, if you, if you want the quality or the experience of what those records sound like, you should do it that way. Try it. Of course, we, he didn't have a regular band. He just had he was all studio musicians on the session and, to them, maybe having that isolation to be able to fix a few things and punch things or overdub or whatever, they, that it would be easier than trying to work it all out on the floor live and take a couple hours, you know, to actually sound like a band. It's a it's a pretty ominous, you know, thing. But that's the funny thing, you know, technology has, you, you'd think it would get to where you could make a record sound like it did in the 60s, but really you can't unless you do it like they did in the 60s. You should get around a couple of microphones and just do it live. And then a few times I took some, I had uh, some friends from the Netherlands that came over and they recorded one of his songs. They wanted to meet him. So I took him over there to meet him. And he, uh, I said, well, we got to get a bottle of Red 7. You know, he drank Seagram's. That's what he liked to drink. And uh, so we stopped at the liquor store to get him a bottle of Seagram's. And I take these guys over to his house. And this is what I would always do. I, if I took anybody over there, I'd always bring a bottle of Seagram's. We sit down on the couch, and he takes it. I said, I brought you something for Jimmy. And he takes that, and he stuffs it down in the couch, like down in between this, you know, two pieces of the couch. And so I let these guys visit a little bit with Jimmy, and I would go over and I'd talk to Marianne, who at the time was, you know, doing all of his man- management work, office work at his house, his partner. 
And she said, you know, Mike, it's the people. It's the people that want him to drink. He doesn't, you know, and I'm, uh, all of a sudden I start feeling guilty for bringing this over there. Like, I'm one of those people, you know, I'm an enabler. <laughs> <laughs> but on one other hand, it's like, you want to enable Jimmy Martin. That's where you really see him in his, you know, full color, you know. Uh, he was funny. These people from the Netherlands were there, and he, he, he had one dog that would roam around his property, one coon hound that, he just sort of had on the loose. The rest of them were in cages or kennels behind his house. But this was like a pup. He let it run around. And, and it was the meanest little damn dog. He'd bite you. He had a sign. You know, he did a song called Dog Bite Your Hide. And he had a saw- sign that said, a stop sign at his house. He said, beware of dog. Bite your hide. <laughs> and he was right. Anyway, he had this old fluffy old cat, you know, outdoor cat. And he says, hey, I want to show you something. Watch this dog. He's really coming along. So he takes the cat, and he's holding the cat up against a tree, and he's got the dog is just going crazy, just ready to just maul this cat. He goes, now watch him go, watch him go. And he throws the cat down, and the cat just runs off, and the dog chases after him, and they just start going around in circles this yard, chasing each other. And these people from uh, Holland are just appalled. They're just, what is going on here? (laughs) And he was just, you know, thoroughly entertained by the whole thing, you know, just. I guess he knew the cat wasn't going to get hurt. Eventually, they get tired out or whatever. I don't know, but it was just he—he he had a good eye for coon, coonhound, I guess. <laughs> you want to have a country experience, but then when it actually happens in front of you, <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. I asked Sonny Osborne. You know, Sonny Osborne came to Nashville with Jimmy Martin in 1954, maybe. He was only 13 or 14 years old to play banjo for Bill Monroe. Like, Jimmy brought him to play with Bill. And I told Sonny one time, I said, "How in what parent in the world would send you off to Nashville with Jimmy Martin as your guardian <laughs> at the age of 14 to play banjo for Bill Monroe? I said, it just this doesn't seem possible today that that would even happen. And he said, you know, my, my parents revered that man so much, Bill Monroe, that they would do anything to see me play with him. And he says, I, I had a rare opportunity to do it. And he says, and I, and I went and did it. And he's re- recorded a couple sides. He did uh, Pike County Breakdown. And I think uh, Little Girl, Dreadful Snake, somebody's playing on that, 14 years old. I mean, Earl Scruggs had only showed up on the scene about seven years before. So it's like uh, amazing, you know, that he had created a sound and, and opportunity. And now even 14-year-old kids were mastering the style you know pretty amazing the kid must have been locked in a room for years just uh well Sonny always said you know he said there was grooves in my school desk where i would practice my rolls on my right hand on top of the school desk it's all i could think about at school and he'd actually put grooves in it throughout the year yeah he played out uh, there was a festival a couple times out at smiley hollow in goodlettsville and he played out there one year I was out there. I backed up Mac Wiseman out there. And Jimmy was on before us. And Mac was waiting to go on. He's sitting in the back, and I'm back there. And then Jimmy comes off the stage, and and you could feel this weird, odd magnetism between the two of them. I mean, these guys went back to 1948. And Mac was with Bill Monroe when Jimmy Martin showed up in Nashville. I got the story from both of them, like how they got in Bill Monroe's band and how they, how it all happened. You know, Jimmy showed up here and bought, he came here on a bus. He got fired from his job 
from singing on the job too much. He was obnoxious, I guess, you know, incorrigible youth. <laughs> Go so figure. He, he bought a ticket and came to Nashville to see Bill Monroe. That was his idol. He thought Bill Monroe hung the moon. He knew every song, and that was his guy, you know. And uh, he said, I came to the Ryman. I was sitting up in the balcony, and they announced Bill Monroe, and he said, I said, well, hell, that can't be Bill Monroe. He's got to be a little bitty guy singing that high tenor. He said, here, this guy came out. He was like 6'2", playing a little mandolin, you know. And he never had seen him, never had laid eyes on him. Anyway, he went and met him backstage or in the alley, I guess. He went around and met him and waited for him to come out. And uh, he said, I, I, I can sing just, just like you, but I sing uh, perfect harmony to you. Um, I, I know all your songs and that. Well, Bill brought him inside and said, come on in here. And they went in and they started singing. And supposedly somebody like Roy Acuff or somebody walked by and said, is that, is that boy kin to you, Bill? And they said, and he said, no. He said, well, he sure sounds like he is. And so Bill invited him to come on the road the next weekend uh, on one of their tent shows, I guess. And, of course, Mac was in the band. Of course, Mac, he'd already been with Flatten Scruggs. And, and then he took this job with Bill because Bill had heard him on the radio in Knoxville and always liked, he was a crooner, much like Lester Flatt. So he liked that sound that he heard. And so he hired Mac, but Mac didn't know any of Bill's material. And they supposedly, Mac said on the first night they played, Bill said, what are you going to sing tonight, Mac? And he goes, I don't know. I don't know any of your songs, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they learned quick because, you know, Mac cut probably the very first bluegrass record ever made in Nashville was uh, Mac Wiseman singing with Bill Monroe on uh, uh, Traveling Down This Lonesome Road, probably one of the very first bluegrass sessions that was actually in Nashville and not Chicago or Atlanta. But anyway, uh, they went out on the road, and, you know, of course, uh, Mac didn't get around too good then, and, and uh, so he probably didn't sell songbooks. You know, they'd take an intermission, and he would go out in the audience and sell uh, souvenirs. Jimmy Martin told me, he said, Mac said to me, he said, the, Hey, boys, we need to get out there and sell some of them songbooks. He said, well, hell, I don't work for Bill Monroe. You do. <laughs> <laughs> but Mac told me, he said, you know, Jimmy Martin, he, he wanted that job so bad. He said, I just let him have it. And he goes, you know, I had other ideas. And he said he went back to Flatten Scruggs for about a minute, and then he just struck out on his own after that. And then Jimmy stayed with Bill for a couple of years and cut, you know, some classic bluegrass and really – redefine the sound of Bill Monroe's band in the early 50s from what it had been in the late 40s. And uh, But anyway, getting back to that festival up in uh, Goodlettsville, Jimmy Martin and Mac Wiseman, they're sort of hovering around each other, but not really conversing, you know. And then finally, Jimmy looks over at Mac and he says, uh, he says, you know, I love you, Mac. And Mac says, I love you too, Jim. I said, let me get you lovebirds together for a picture. And so I took a picture of the two of them together, and it's just a, probably the greatest picture I've ever taken. I call it the 48 Classics, the 49 Classics. <laughs> <laughs> when I would see him in Bean Blossom, you know, back when, if he played for 60 minutes, five or 10 minutes of it was him complaining that he's not in the Country Music Hall <laughs> right. of Fame. Was that... Just stage banner, or was that a for real thing? Well, he always felt he got robbed, you know, from the by the Grand Ole Opry. But I think the Grand Ole Opry, they, they couldn't really, they couldn't control him. And I've heard tapes of him playing on the Opry as a guest, and he just wrecks the place, you know. I mean, he knew how to entertain people. It wasn't just the music. It was his stage presence and his personality and the way that he could just 
feature his band guys and, and get people to rally around a solo or whatever and just bring that energy level up out of a crowd. Nobody could do it like Jimmy Martin. And, you know, that's a magic thing. It's hard to learn. It's hard to do. But in his case, it was a, he was a natural, you know. One of the greatest quotes ever from Jimmy Martin, the guy that was making the record with Benny Martin, says to him, uh, he said, Jimmy, how come you and Bobby Osborne can't recreate some of those great duets that you guys recorded back in the 50s and kind of revisit some of that stuff? That would be awesome. And he goes, well, there's two things that keep things like that from happening in this music business. One is jealousy, and the other one is stupidity. And I said, Jimmy, you just said a mouthful right there. Jealousy and stupidity. <laughs> and I, I just thought, you know, here's a guy with a third-grade education who he can't often say what he's really trying to say with any clarity. You know, you have to kind of sort through it to figure out what he's trying to tell you. And that's one of them. You know, it's like, yeah, the word is stupidity, but for him, it's stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> and it just goes a lot. It says a lot, you know. It's, what a character. We, we were at Bean Blossom one year. I don't know. If, were you a regular at Bean Blossom in the last few years at all or of his life? Because he was kind of the host yeah, of it, you know. I think I saw the last few. So you might have been there when Ralph Stanley was there. Yeah. Uh, Tom T. Hall came yep. a couple years, got up with. Uh, Marty Stewart was there one year. Well, the year that Ralph Stanley was his guest, this is kind of a long story, but we, we'd gone into Bean Blossom. We'd gotten these hats at this uh, hardware store, and we thought, we're going to get these hats. They're like dollar cowboy hats, and we'll spray paint them red, and we'll all get in the front row to watch Jimmy Martin's show. We're all camped out up there. Well, everybody's doing their hat, getting their hats done up and fixing them up for the show that night, and uh Dwight, the guy that ran the festival, come out in a golf cart. He says, hey, uh, Jimmy wants you to play bass with him tonight. Can you play bass with him? I said, yeah, I guess so. I'll play bass with him. So I go backstage to play with Jimmy and get warmed up or whatever. And there's this big log back there where they were calling the show, Jimmy Martin and Ralph Stanley get the, getting the rabbit out of the log, which is get the you know rabbit in the logs, Monroe Brothers classic bluegrass song. They're going to sing the song together, I guess. And So anyway, I see this log backstage and think anything of it and, we're back there and we're warming up and now it's showtime. So we're out on stage and he says, Hey, you want to get Ralph Stanley out here? And well, my buddy Ferg had collected all these hats that we made in camp. And since we weren't going to sit in the front row, he handed them out to all of Ralph's band and Ralph's band walks out. And they've all got these dollar uh, straw hats on that have been spray painted fire engine red, like Jimmy's <laughs> and his whole band comes out. And uh, Jimmy says, for the first time in my life, I'm speechless. <laughs> it was just classic. It was just hilarious. Anyway, they get to singing a few songs, and then uh, they say, hey, you ready to get the rabbit out of the log? So they bring this big old log out on stage. Well, it turns out it's got a big brass handle on it, and the ends open up, and it's hollowed out. And there's rabbits inside of this thing. And the rabbits don't come out. So they pick up the log and they shake it and the rabbits fall out onto the stage and these stage lights, they've been inside this thing, God knows how long, in the darkness, waiting for the show. And there's three, three rabbits <laughs> on stage and Jimmy says, well, hell, them ain't wild rabbits, those are tame rabbits. And he just picks each one of them up one at a time and just chucks them off the stage into the crowd. And I have not been able to find a videotape of that. But I know somebody's got it on video somewhere. I would love to see it. And uh, 
the guy that made the documentary on Jimmy, George Gould, he was there. That's the first time he saw Jimmy Martin was that show. And he was just like, I got to make a movie on this guy. <laughs> and he did. But I'm sure he pissed a few people off that night when he threw those rabbits out in the crowd. It was not a care in the world, you know? <laughs> well, he, he would always talk at Bean Blossom about how he had squirrel on his rider. They had to. Yeah, well, there's a big uh, squirrel and, and uh, coon hunting clubs in southern indiana down in there and one year they had uh this huge they had all the different clubs came together and they had this huge feed you know and uh there's a guy you know there's in the documentary you see this guy's stirring this big vat of you know squirrel gravy and there's these ladies over there slicing potatoes and and uh camera goes on tom t hall and he says there ain't a squirrel alive in brown county <laughs> Well, he would tell you that he had a million dollars in the bank, you know. I'm talking about a guy who just ate cornbread and beans. I mean, he was country, you know. He didn't live above his means, let me put it that way. He didn't live like a millionaire. But he was all about his presentation. You know, when you'd see him, he would always dress to the nines. You know, he had his own style and clothes. I mean, Tom T. and Dixie Hall got – they. They searched out to find the reddest shirt they could possibly buy him, and they gave him this shirt, and he wore it on every show, you know, just like this sort of red shirt with a real sheen to it, you know. But he, he was all showbiz, you know. He was a, he was a natural uh, P.T. Barnum and probably just very tight with a dollar. Matter of fact, I know he was tight with a dollar because he, Sean Camp played fiddle with him on that show at Goodlettsville, and, and – uh, he was called Jimmy up to get paid, you know, and he says, well, how much do you think I need to pay you? And he said, well, just pay me what you're paying the rest of the guys. That's fine. He goes, well, hell, some of them guys been with me 10 years. You can't tell me you play one show with me and I'm going to pay you what I've been paying the guys been with me 15 years. That don't sound right, does it? You make you feel guilty. He said, well, just pay me whatever you think you ought to pay me. $50, whatever. He goes, well, now I don't want to, I don't want to shortchange you. You know, it's like you're having an argument over with a guy getting paid, you know, for doing one set. And it's just like, just pay the guy, whatever, you know. He didn't do it for the money. He did it because he wanted to play for you, you know. So just pay him, whatever. My buddy Fergie played bass with him in the last band that he had on the road. And one time, he, when, when Jimmy got sick, he had, uh, I think he had bladder cancer is what finally got him. And maybe, maybe cirrhosis. So Ferg goes over to his house and kind of barrels, barrels through the door. He says, where's the king of bluegrass? You know, and walks around the corner. And in the living room is Jimmy Martin sitting in this uh, hospital bed. Basically, he was having hospice care at home. And Jimmy, uh, Bobby Osborne and, uh, and Paul Williams were both there visiting him. Pretty powerful. You know, those are two of those tenor singers that, you know, probably made some of the greatest classic bluegrass music of all time with Jimmy Martin. I guess Bobby was sitting in a little chair next to the bed. And he says, hey, Ferg, come over. You can take my chair. And Ferg goes, I think you got some catching up to do. <laughs> <laughs> These guys hadn't spoken ever, forever, you know. There's a, there's a festival up in Cherokee, North Carolina. The, the stage is sort of on the edge of this pond, and you have to walk down this ramp to go off the stage. And uh, 
I was there one year, and uh, the Osborne brothers were playing, and then Jimmy Martin was coming on afterward. At the end of the Osborne brothers set, there was uh, a, a rain started to fall. And Bobby, of course, has a really nice hat, and he's got his, you know, his mandolin. And so the whole band kind of runs off the stage, but Bobby decides he's going to wait it out, and he stays on this stage. And I realize all of a sudden that Jimmy Martin and Bobby Osborne are going to have to meet on this ramp at some point. The show's going to have to go on. And so I'm like, I'm not moving. I'm going to sit right here and wait and see what happens when these two guys have to confront each other on this little ramp. And I see Jimmy Martin's head, you know, coming out of the screen door and looking if he should head to the stage or not. And Bobby's just sort of hanging backstage. And and then I realize it's about to happen. They're going to meet. This is it. This is it. Bobby's going to make his run for it. And Jimmy Martin's going to head for the stage. And they sort of came at each other. And I don't know if they ever even saw each other, but there was a scaffolding that had the speakers on it. And as they both came from their respective points, they went around each other like opposing magnets around the scaffold. One went one way, one went the other way, and they didn't even look at each other. And I felt robbed. I was like, dang it. How'd that happen? And they just had a way of, of avoiding each other, you know, naturally that they didn't have to, you know, engage in each other's company, I guess. But uh, I'm glad that Bobby did go to see him, you know, at the end because they really did. You know, they made a lot of important music together. It's, it's, it was good that they were able to sort of acknowledge that and, you know, at the end and kind of let it go, let all that decades go. Did you go to his funeral? Yeah, I was there. I go to all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the biggest uh, bouquet came from Hermitage Liquors. <laughs> <laughs> is that the truth or is that a joke? It's the truth. It's the truth. <laughs> I came down and visited his grave 10 years before he died. Me and yeah. my buddy Todd came down, a big, huge thing mm-hmm. just down the road here. It's and a major I, stop on Mike Bubb's tour of Nashville. It's a good one. <laughs> well, I mean, and you have uh, Roy Acuff close by. and yep. uh, Earl and Louise Scruggs. Yeah. There's quite a few people right around there. But yeah. well, Can you describe his uh, funeral at all? Like who was there? Or? Uh, it was out in Hermitage at a church out there. You know, he was another iconic guy that had a lot of people that just revered him and his music. But Jimmy made a lot of poor choices down through the years, too, and didn't always treat people uh, that well. And so I think because of that, maybe he didn't have quite the funeral that somebody like Bill Monroe would have, you know. He had a lot of drama in his life, you know, whether it was his family or uh, people he did business with or sidemen. You know, just a hillbilly. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it other than, you know, if you didn't, if you, if you just allowed yourself to be entertained by him and probably didn't have to do business with him or be work for him, you know, you probably have a better view of him like I do. I just got to play with him a couple times and just be around him. And mostly I was entertained by his antics. But there's a lot of people that probably didn't enjoy that so much or, or that's completely you know, understandable. I'm sure they had a lot, you know, just the way he is, he had a lot of drama in his life. If you've ever read the read, read the Tom Piazza book, you know which is the the story about him. Um, the guy came and went to the Opry with him, and he tells the whole story. But I was in a it was in a um, publication called uh, Oxford American. It sold more copies than any other magazine they'd ever sold, and so they published it into a little small book. And uh, if if you haven't read it or seen it, it's really something. It really. T- 
it really puts Jimmy Martin in a typical kind of light, you know. He was very bombastic. He always wanted to be a member of the Grand Ole Opry, and he let everybody know from everybody at the Grand Ole Opry on down that he should be in there. And they probably pissed a lot of people off, you know. You don't, you don't get it that way. I went out to his house not too long ago. We used to, last summer we were picking up, uh, we're doing our bus drops at the Hermitage Kroger out there, and his house isn't too far from there. But I thought, I'm going to go out there and take a look around and see what it looks like out there. And <clears throat> it looked like somebody hadn't been living there in a while, but they were fixing the house up, getting ready to sell it. His limousine was there in the driveway, sort of rotting into the driveway. And there was an old pickup truck there. And then uh, old Pete, the coonhound, uh, his dog house is still there with a the roof caving in on it. Took some pictures of that. You know, it's just kind of bittersweet. You walk around there and you go, wow, you know, this." when somebody doesn't live in a house, it just falls apart. You know, part of the carport's caving in. And, and you know, when he was there, it was taken care of he was out there he was watering his trees and gardening and cutting his grass and doing whatever it is that you live in a house you know it's almost like the whole place died with him you know in a way in the carport when i was out there was this uh, couch and a chair and uh, it's a, it's the kind of couch it's made out of wood frame and the, and the and the arms are half wagon wheels sort of a western motif and the chair is the same way and then it's like green vinyl upholstery and one of them has a horse's head embroidered on it, and the other one has a saddle embroidered on it. So it's really a cool couch and chair. And I'm looking at this couch and chair. I'm looking around and go, God, I would love to have this. This is really cool. And it was kind of in his sitting room off of his carport. Well, a couple of weeks go by, and, I, and I'm talking to this other buddy of mine, Larry, who dances at the Opry, and he was good friends with Jimmy Martin and played with him. I said, yeah, I was at the house not too long ago. He goes, yeah, I was just there. He said, I was out there looking at that limousine. Ray wants to sell me the limo. He said, but he said, I don't even know if we get it started. I don't know what it would take to get that thing running. I don't, he said, I don't, I don't need all that trouble. But uh, I said, when I was there, I said, there was a couch and a chair in that carport. And I thought about just taking it that nobody would care. And, I, and then I thought, no, that's not the right thing to do. You know, maybe it's going somewhere or something. I said, I didn't take it. He goes, well, it wasn't there when I was there. He says, but I'll tell you this. He said, do you know where that couch and chair came from? And I go, no, I don't. And he goes, that came from Hank and Audrey's house. And he says, if you go to the Hall of Fame, there's a picture of Audrey and Hank Jr. and his sister sitting on that couch in their house. And it's it's a big picture. And it's hanging up down there at the Country Music Hall of Fame. And that's the couch that was at Jimmy Martin's house that I could have made off with, but I didn't. Of course, he loved Hank Williams, you know. Well, man, I appreciate you sharing stories, and it's great to hear these. It's great to see you. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, if I think of anything, I'll call you. <laughs> if I miss something. I'm going to go look for that couch. <laughs> yeah. Probably at the flea market. i find it down there. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Mike for coming over to my living room and sharing us stories. You can follow Mike on Twitter at twitter.com slash oldbubby. 
If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you could pick up a CD, a t-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.